Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. Kevin, so happy to have you back, although I believe the next two people you were introduced did not have kind things to say about you in your absence. Yeah, you know, exactly. I've always been supportive of you. I know that, well. David. That's right. David, I can hardly ever reach the knives that you put in my bag. <laughs> they, you, you did it so artfully, I can't even reach them. It's, it's just unbelievable <laughs> how, how well you do that. And, and joining us also from, uh, from lovely San Diego is Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. Oh, you can hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. You know, those silences, the listeners don't generally like them. You know, yeah. people will turn off. Where you're involved, they might. Yeah. They, they might like the silences. Oh, what a, those what a, long, what a, drawn out silences. Okay. What a clever guy you are. So I'm immediately <laughs> not going to ask you anything else at this point and go over to our next guest, our, our good friend, Callie Kaplan, our beat writer for the Dallas Morning News who covers the Mavericks. Hello, Callie. How are you? I'm good, Kevin, and I promise I'll be nicer than these two. Uh, you know, Callie, you can't help but be nicer. You're just a nicer person. You're a better person. By default. By default, I think. <laughs> yes. It's a very low people. bar. It is a very low bar. You could trip over it. So <laughs> be careful. My parents raised me well. <laughs> yes, they did. And then clearly these other two were left to the wolves. So uh, anyway, we're going to – Callie's going to chirp in a little bit, we hope, on the Cowboys. But she's here primarily to give us some insight into the Mavericks uh, as they uh, embark on this new season. Uh, we're going to talk about the Mavericks. We're going to talk about the Rangers' uh, free agent hopes. And Evan is at the GM meetings in San Diego. And we're also going to talk about the Cowboys coming off a catastrophic <laughs> loss, catastrophic, perilous loss uh, to the Denver Broncos. Is this the worst 6-2 and two team in NFL history, Kevin? Is yes, it is. Going? The worst 6-2 and two team ever. I wrote, you know, in the, I start getting these emails in the middle of games, you know, even when I'm not covering them from readers. Oh my gosh, this is the worst thing ever. Super Bowl. Are you kidding? This team's not going anywhere. It's like, how about the first seven games? Were you not impressed by the first seven games? Is this eighth one really the deciding factor? Holy cow. What have you done for me lately? So anyway, well, there was, there were some concerning things in that loss. I, I do want to preface by saying, that Buffalo, which might be the most well-rounded team in the entire NFL, lost 9-6 to to Jacksonville. That, that might have been the ugliest game in the history of professional football. <laughs> so that for them to lose to Jacksonville, uh, Urban Meyer's Jacksonville, 9-6, uh, to is awful. So I, I will say that the, the Cowboys were exceeded in their uh, you know, imbecility. Uh, in that game. So anyway. Well, except Buffalo still had a chance to win that game. I'm not sure that Dallas had a chance to win the game they were in uh, about midway through the second quarter. I think that thing had gotten away from them. Certainly by early in the third quarter, it was clear they were not going to win. But if I think if you'd given Dak another quarter, a fifth quarter to run him out there some more. Well, well you, you know, know, he would have played, right? <laughs> That's, all, that's always a good strategy is let's bring up the fifth quarter possibility. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's always a real realistic option. Well, um, I, I, that was a little crazy that, uh, look, I, I, I have every game I've covered, which have all been wins, I'd like to add, uh, but every game that I have covered of the Cowboys this season, I have complained about something, you know. And so I, I sat there after that game saying that, okay, I would have gone for it on both of those fourth down plays in the first quarter on their first two drives 
And I didn't have a problem with him bringing Dak, leaving Dak in at the end of the game, if for no other reason than just to get him in a little bit of rhythm, kind of get him into something where he, he seemed to be playing better, get his confidence back, because he looked like he was a little shaken before that, and maybe get him feeling better going forward. Now, I was not in favor of the of the going for two and the quarterback draw, if that's what Dak had decided to do. Obviously, he had several options on that play. That was a bad idea, a really bad idea. There were some bad elements in that, and so perhaps that was not a good idea, but at least I saw the idea in the first place. Well, first, let's let's preface this by we'll go through your points here. One, you've only been to one game this year, and yes, they did win it. So I think that, that should be that out. is not true. I have been to several <laughs> games. Thank you for remembering, David. <laughs> but uh, but two about about the fourth down. This this is a pattern, right? Uh, how often have we seen uh, Mike McCarthy in the team's first offensive possession? If they're anywhere near midfield and it's fourth and one, they're going to go for it. Now, he doesn't just spring this on Kellen Moore. He tells Kellen Moore if it's a third and three or a third and four or third and five that, look, you have two downs here. If you get it within fourth and two, we're going for it. So um, Kellen Moore is not caught by surprise. They're, they're in on this, and, and they want to be aggressive. McCarthy argues it's not aggressive. He says that if when we're talking about fourth and two or fourth and one with our offense – that's not being aggressive. It's just at certain points of the field where we are that makes sense for our offensive expertise and level of efficiency. But now flip it and see what it does for the other team. And, you know, coming out of that game, uh, Denver talked about, oh, well, we held them twice on fourth down on their first two possessions. Uh, they were trying to disrespect us. Uh, that second time we shoved it right down their throats and set the tone of the game. So how do you like that? Um, you know, also – uh, the other one, uh, that the, the game you were at in New England, um, you know, we, we were talking about that when it happened, right? Uh, on the road against an inferior team. And what do you do? You go for it on fourth down early. You get stuffed again on fourth and one on the run game. And then New England comes back and scores and you give them, uh, you allow them into a game where clearly you have the advantage, uh, and to do that on the road to me make no sense. It makes a little more sense at home, but still, you went into that game knowing you should have been better than Denver. Why are you doing anything early to give them a leg up on you? And that's, I think, that's what most people will question about this insistence on going for it on fourth and short early. What is interesting? Then they fell behind, and they had another fourth down in that same position. And they didn't go for it, my belief is, because they weren't successful on the first two when you could have argued that was the place to go for it. So uh, these decisions have a domino effect, and you know you, you kind of have to play them out. Uh, they were pretty successful on them up until this Denver game, but the Denver game showed you how it could go uh, south on you in a hurry. Were they 0 for 3 in the game? Uh, well, they were over. Yeah, I think that sounds right to me. Yeah, they did another one later and they skipped over another one. They were really 0 for 3 or 0 for 4. I don't have it uh, right in front of me. 14 here. for the season. They're basically 33% on, on fourth down conversion. They were 0 for 4. They, were, they, yeah. they entered the game at 50%. At 50%, on yeah. Right. David, would you consider that to be effective on fourth down? Uh, oh for four? No, 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 not 0 for 4. <laughs> but I'm saying they were a 50% team going into the into the game. 
Oh, v- very effective. Yeah. Okay. Now, again, I still question at certain points where they did some. I think they you could be a little more selective with it. Uh, but no, 50% on fourth down conversions. Again, it's going to be shorter. It, it's very good. But what you've seen is on a lot of these fourth and ones, they just plunge Ezekiel Elliott into the line and he gets stuck for a yard loss. That happened in New England. It happened here again with Denver. Uh, you know, Minnesota, I think he was also stopped on a, on a short fourth, fourth down call. So uh, the interior of their run offense needs to be, their offensive line needs to be better on the interior, or they need to call something else because that Ezekiel Elliott plunge into the line is not working. Well, Jerry Jones is under the impression they're not very good at it. Uh, he was quoted after the game saying that, oh, you know, uh, that's no, that was no surprise to me that we didn't get it because uh, we haven't been very good at it this year. Yeah, you don't want to hear that from the owner, yeah. Yeah, not from the owner and general manager. So uh, I, I think the, the bigger issue for me this time is that we've, we've always t- talked about it from the standpoint of what the Cowboys are gambling or risking here. We never talk about it from what the, it means to the other team, and, and clearly that's what – Denver talked about afterwards. It's what uh, Vic Fangio, the head coach, said. It's what the players talked about, uh, the lift that it gave them, that uh, they stopped the the vaunted Cowboys offense twice uh, when they were so confident they could uh, make this happen. And, uh, you know, when you study analytics, no one ever looks at that that uh, line of thinking. They never look at the emotions involved. They always are just looking at numbers and say, this is what you should be doing. And yet, when you do those, because things, you can't quantify it, yeah, yeah, right. And and uh, and I think it did give Denver something. You know, I, I think clearly the Ca- the Cowboys, as it was brought up after the game too, uh, who really is the most valuable Cowboy? Well, isn't that Tyron Smith? Because with Terrence Steele playing left tackle, uh, the Cowboys' offense went nowhere. Uh, and I don't. I'm not going to blame that all on Terrence Steele, but I do think that there were factors involved here, and their offensive line was not able to do what they wanted to do. They couldn't uh, impose the running game. Uh, and, and look, Denver's defense is really good. Uh, and I, I think we kind of underplayed that a little bit. And I do think that Teddy Bridgewater played out of his mind in that game. Uh, he had not shown, you know, I've, I've always respected Teddy because he's he's not the kind of guy who turns the ball over a lot. Uh, he, he keeps things safe for you. He's the perfect backup quarterback usually. But uh, as a starting quarterback, he's not been the kind of guy uh, who takes the kind of gambles and does the things as he did in that game. Well, I, I, I would just say this on the fourth down situation. The, the Cowboys are predictable in early in games now on fourth down. And the, I, you may not be able to quantify um, efficiency on what it does for uh, overall offensive effectiveness for a team that does stuff the Cowboys on fourth down. But I think everybody accepts that it is a – it's an emotional lift, and if you want to call it momentum early in the game, you can you can grab some momentum early in the game. And I think now teams can really gear up. The Cowboys are so predictable that teams can gear up. Hey, if we make a stop here early in the game, we're going to get a short field, and we can script our own game. And the Cowboys are going to have to adjust to that. And that, to me, guys, is is at the is at the basis of everything here. I I, I don't think this is a bad loss per se. Um, all the other contenders in the NFC with the exception of Arizona, lost this weekend. Um, but as Brad Chan said late in the fourth quarter, I think, on, on, on the radio, make no mistake, this is a setback. And it is a setback because the Cowboys' weaknesses were exposed. And, and so my question for both of you is, can they address those weaknesses? Do they have the ability to address those weaknesses? Or is, it, or, or is this the kind of thing that, that could really blow up into a much bigger issue? Well, you know, um, 
Dak and, and Mike McCarthy were actually, and, and, and Kellen Morey, uh, the offensive coordinator as well, were really kind of defiant on this idea of, of did Denver lay out a blueprint on, on how to play this team? And, and what Denver did defensively was uh, they came down, stopped the run, did a man match, uh, you know, single coverage and, and also zone and, and really, uh, you know, got Dak Prescott out of the pocket and see if you could beat us. Uh, I, I think you saw some residual effect of the calf because Dak Prescott was not as effective outside the pocket as he normally is. And the, and the numbers back that up dramatically. But, uh, you know, immediately afterwards, when asked about a blueprint, you could hardly get the question out before Dak Prescott went, there's no blueprint here. We want every team to play us this way. We want every team to take away the run and say, okay, you beat us through the air. Uh, we just had a bad day. We, you know, we relish this. Bring it on, basically. You guys buying or selling that? Yeah, I mean, Mike McCarthy. Well, I, I'm buying it. I think it was, it was a very disturbing aberration, but I do consider it an aberration based on the context of how this team has performed this season. Um, you know, some some games you just can't explain. Um, you know, it strikes me what. You know, Mike McCarthy, one of his favorite TV shows is Ted Lasso. And I don't know if y'all watch it, but in the second season, the ninth episode is about, it's called Beard After Hours. It's about the assistant coach. And it's completely disconnected from the rest of the series. Uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't further the narrative. Uh, it's not connected. Spoilers for all the people who haven't watched Ted Well, Lasso. I'm not telling you specifics about it, but it's not connected to the series. And then you get back to the series in 10, I think Mike McCarthy and the Cowboys, at least they hope that is what took place with this Denver game. This is just something, this is an outlier that doesn't really indicate who they are, what they're about. And sometimes you just scratch your head and go, where did that come from and move on? That being said, you can't dismiss it. As Dan Quinn, the defensive coordinator said yesterday, we want to spend some time in this. You know, we want to, we want to feel what this is like and show what a fine line there is from executing at a high level, which we've been doing, to completely falling off the, the, the side of the, of the mountain in, in, into this. My immediate take, Kevin, I want, I, want to get your, I want to get your take on this, but my immediate take during that game was, yeah, it's an aberration, that, that, that this team is a good football team, and they played a bad game. And I think when we talked about predictions earlier on, I, I, I did say, look, there's going to be a game in the streak here that, that, that's going to sneak up on them, and, and the Broncos did. I buy the I buy the fact that it's an aberration. Kevin, do you feel like it's an aberration, or do you feel like it, it is the beginning of, of something that the Cowboys really need to seriously address, or is it something that they've got the ability to address? I don't think we'll know that until we see them play again, until we see them play against the Falcons. What, uh, what do you think? You're the expert. Uh, I am an expert. I am the expert, I like to say. <laughs> uh, but but I, I think that <laughs> – we look at what Vic Fangio said after the game, who was it real? I wish I had been sitting in that press conference because the first thing he said was, how about them Broncos? Which was like, wow, you come in here, you win this game, and you're, and you're flouting you know, Cowboys glory. Unbelievable. But anyway, uh, one of the things he said was, no one else has played them this way. You know, listen. I, Vic Vanjo is a very well-respected – He may he's a little bit of a nut, but he's a very well-respected defensive coordinator for, throughout his career. And for him to say that, uh, that tells me that there's something different here. And and I thought that Dak 
clearly looked confused at times, and he has not looked confused this year. And uh, and as David said, maybe he was affected by his calf. That's certainly a possibility. His throws were off. Uh, he, his timing wasn't good. Uh, the, the you know Cowboys were dropping balls left and right. Uh, the whole team seemed shaken, uh, and 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 I think that was not a good sign either. What you want to see a good team do is you get in a, a bad situation. Okay, we got down. We did this. All right, let's just pull it all together, and here we go. And they didn't do that, uh, and that to me was disturbing that they they were not able to rally and come out of that. Uh, that's that's something they need to show that they can do, and certainly they need to start this week against the Falcons. Yeah, and very quickly wrapping it up, I think on this whole question of aberration or blueprint, I think if you look at it strictly in the context of this season, at this moment you have to say it's an aberration, it's an outlier. If you're looking at it through the lens of many Cowboys fans who still have the emotional scars of the last 25 years, you're going to say, oh no, same old team. Here we go again. Watch what's going to happen next. Yeah, It's all in perspective. Good teams get exposed, but they then fix that hole before exactly. it becomes a, 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 a leak that, that could sink their season. I love that metaphor. That was really good. The hole becomes the leak that sinks the season. Now let's get to the more pleasant part of the podcast. <laughs> yes. If I could just get, if we could just turn off, if Jeff Whittington, our fine producer, could turn off your mic uh, now, that would be great because we'll turn on Callie Kaplan's. Callie, our, our uh, Mavericks beat writer, in her first year leading the charge on the Mavericks, has them in a terrible straits now. I, I, we're not making a connection there at all, Callie. We don't, we don't want to say that the Mavericks are really struggling because you're covering the team now. I'm, for now, I'm going to say that's because Jason Kidd is trying to do things with this team that they're uncomfortable with. But I'll, I'll leave that open for him. That's all right, though. I have, I have a reputation for chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are 7-3. Well, they, uh, they are 7-3. I, I, like, I, I like what Reggie Bullock said. Uh, that if we could keep up 7-3, every 10 games we'll be in great shape. And that's, and that's true. They are 7-3. and three. Of course, those seven wins are against mostly the, like, uh, I think it was the Big East that they played, some of those teams. <laughs> some of them are, are pretty bad. That's a pretty bad uh, New Orleans team now. So uh, I'm not going to give them too much credit for that. But we are, we are seeing Jason asking this group, to do something different. We're seeing them asking Luka Doncic to do something different. We're seeing the, the two-headed point guard. We're seeing him asking Luka to be a more of a defensive factor. And he is certainly doing those things. What we need to know is, is he embracing those things? Because at the Mavericks or nothing else, they're all about being Luka-friendly. And, and so is Luka happy? Yes, Luka is happy right now. Um, and if only because they are winning. And he really and sometimes it sounds like a cliche, but he really doesn't care about his statistics or his own personal accolades, at least, you know, right after games, maybe in the long run of the season, he would like to be an all-star. He'd like to be first team all NBA, but he doesn't care, you know, how many points he scores or how many assists he gets as long as they're winning. And like you said, seven and three, he'll take that every time, every 10 game stretch. Um, And so as long as they continue at the pace where they're winning more than they're losing, I don't think you're going to have a problem with Luca trying to learn how to play more with Jalen Brunson or trying to feed Kristaps Porzingis more in the post if that's what they keep doing. Um, maybe this is a different story if they start losing and and things kind of, you know, maybe not take quite as big of a turn as the Cowboys did this weekend, but if uh, things get a little bit rockier than they have been so far. But I don't think that Luca is unhappy. I think maybe he's just trying to – still trying to figure out exactly – 
what he needs to do and what he where he fits um, in the overall grand scheme of things. But like I said, as long as they keep winning, you're not going to hear a peep out of him. You covered the team that was well last year. You you shared that uh, job with with Brad Townsend, who you who you kicked out of the beat and took over. <laughs> uh, no, Brad Townsend went back to, to writing features, and he's still uh, helping out with the Mavericks too. He does a great job. We love Brad. I'd like to point out that in the pre-show meeting, Callie was very genuine in offering praise of Kevin while David and I <laughs> did his, our typical stuff. And then you come on here and you just swipe at her. And this uh, is yeah. how David and I have gotten this scar. This is why we yeah. turned. I'm, yes. I'm becoming hardened by the episode. Each each episode, I get a little <laughs> bit more guarded. <laughs> exactly. I, I think you owe her an apology. <laughs> my, I, my four children would tell you the same thing. This is exactly what happened. They started out very sweet. And then over the years, I just turned them into monsters. So anyway, uh, so no, Callie, they, so you, you were around the team a lot last year. So can you tell a difference in the chemistry uh, among the players at all? I can. And I think that it's especially the chemistry between the players and the coaching staff as well. I think that you see Luca come off and last year it wasn't necessarily friendly and it wasn't necessarily ice cold with Rick Carlisle, but he'll come off and he'll be smiling or he'll be fist bumping with Jason Kidd. Um, same with Kristaps Porzingis, who has been pretty vocal about his appreciation for his role in this new staff and the fact that, like Jason said last night, they're gonna, not going to turn him into a robot, kind of like they did in the playoffs last year. And I think that just when you look at the leadership aspect of it, it makes it easier for players to be a little bit happier when your top two players um, are just more comfortable with the people they're working with. Um, and so I, I do sense that there's um, some better chemistry this year. I think roles are a little bit more defined. Jalen Brunson's maybe being the one that isn't at this point, but Tim Hardaway Jr. knows he's in the starting lineup. And last year he said that it was sometimes tough coming in and out of that, in and out of that role. And, and not really knowing what to expect. And so I think that you can just kind of see it amongst the guys. They've been playing together for a while. They've got a new voice. They've got some new energy and, and a new scheme. And so I don't think when they say that the chemistry is better, that that's just a front that they're trying to put up. I, I do see, um, especially getting to watch them more in person and up close this year, I do see a difference. I mean, Kelly, the, um, I, I was out Saturday night and, you can't go to a restaurant in Dallas without the a game being on. And I just caught the buzzer beater um, out of the corner of my eye and the reaction. And, and Lucas, I, I didn't hear any of it, but it saw Lucas post game interview. <laughs> a few expletives um, in there. Was that, was that more, any more significant of a buzzer beater for this team than, than past? I mean, it, it certainly looked like there was a whole lot of emotional relief after that. I wouldn't say necessarily more significant in terms of what it means for the overall season, because this is just one regular season game. Um, and, you know, he's hit them in the playoffs. He's hit them when you're down to that magic number late last year when he um, I guess they were in Memphis. They were in Bo or they were home against Boston again. And, and those just felt more significant because of where they were at in the season. But I will say that I think this one was important to show that you, even just to the outside, much even if it's understood inside the team, that this is still Lucas' team. And even though they are experimenting, like Kevin said, with taking the ball out of his hand and not making him the focal point and trying to find him little bits of rest uh, here and there, I really think that that showed that like, when it's crunch time, if Lucas has been struggling, if Lucas has been playing great, if somebody else has been handling the ball, the ball's going in his hands and he's going to do what he has shown that he can do the last four years. And so 
Um, I think it was significant in that sense that for anybody kind of on the fence about like, is this good for Luca? Is he happy? Is this not going to be all right? Um, that just proved that like Luca's okay. Like <laughs> he's going to be fine. And um, he's still got that in him, even if he's had a slow start to this season. Yeah. I think it's interesting to me from the standpoint of, of watching my, I, I agree with you. I think there is a little better chemistry uh, among the players. They, they, especially with, with a, uh, Porzingis and uh, his relationship with the rest uh, and because they are making a concerted effort to involve him in the offense and, and trying to get him going. And that's going to help his defense as well. If, if they're going to do that. I, I think the real interesting part of this now is developed is, is Jalen Brunson is that, you know, he's working so hard. I don't know if I've seen a guy who goes down after making a shot more than he does. He's continually on his back after he makes a shot. Uh, and, and so he's, he is really expending a lot of energy. Uh, I, I think probably he's better off in a role where he's coming off the bench or if he's not, if he's playing like 20 minutes a game, 22 minutes a game, something like that, uh, than he would if he were in a starting role, but it is taking a lot of the load off of, uh, Luca. And I think these are the kind of things that will be interesting to watch as the season develops, as we get, towards the playoffs and we see that the, that the Mavericks can make a run in the playoffs. You know, last year, Luca was magnificent, but in the fourth quarter, he was just always out of gas. Uh, and so um, I think they, they needed to get the ball out of his hands more. His usage rate is among the, I guess, just about the highest in the NBA and it has been throughout his career. It's not, not a good situation. Uh, and, and I think that, uh, that, that Rick Carlisle was pretty much unwilling to do that and, uh, and it's interesting to see Jason Kidd doing it, and yet uh, it's a situation where, as you said, he seems to be really liking Jason. He doesn't seem to reject any of that. So it's an interesting set of dynamics as this develops. Definitely, and I think for Jalen Brunson, I mean, every time he touches the ball, like you hear cash registers because this is a contract year for him. Yes. He's technically eligible <laughs> for an extension right now, um, but that's going to pale in comparison to what he's going to be able to make when he's um, out of that rookie contract and in free agency, unrestricted this summer. Um, and I don't think that that's his like pure motivating force at all. I think if you were to pick anybody on that team, he's probably the consummate team player, and he will literally do whatever role they ask him, and he's not going to complain. But um, it's, it's interesting to see, um, you know, how much his play in the playoffs last year when he, he couldn't be that, that second person alongside Luca because he just wasn't playing well and he just wasn't up to that. Um, to see him now kind of take that as motivation and also in a contract year, be able to do what he's doing. Um, I don't anticipate that it will slow down, um, by any significant measure anytime soon. So it'll be interesting to see how the, they continue to play off each other because they're also really good friends. And so, um, I think it would they would be upset if they heard me say that because they have a very uh, sarcastic relationship. But <laughs> it'll be interesting to follow and see how they develop along the season. David, did you have any uh, thoughts that you want to interject here on the Mavericks? You've uh, you have a long history in the NBA. No, I was just it, you know it's interesting. A, a lot of a lot of transcendent players early in their careers want to continue to do things and work on the things they already do well and don't necessarily adapt or work on the things they don't do well because they don't want to look bad in a team setting. And it, and it seems early, at least, that that Luca is not that way, that he's willing to work on or, or understand that there's some things to give up in his game, and he's comfortable enough that, well, I'm going to get back to him. You can take the ball out of my hands for six or eight minutes here because I know I'll have it at the end, 
And I'm not going to use that as an excuse of, well, I didn't get in my rhythm because I didn't have the ball like I normally did. So uh, that, that just seems to me to, to be a, a really positive sign that he is not at this stage of his career saying, this is the way I do it. This is the way I have to do it. And that's what Callie is too, right? <laughs> I'm the complete opposite. I told you, I you said you said I kicked Brad out of the beat. I need the ball in my hands. I need to get in a rhythm. <laughs> well, that's true. I was listen. I didn't want to keep harping on that. I was trying to soften that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, no, Callie, it's been great having you on the podcast. Well, this is the first time, but it's not going to be the last time. We're going to keep this up through the Maverick season as your schedule dictates. So uh, I'd like to point out that this is not the first time either. <laughs> oh, second time? Second I wasn't time. on it. First time with you, Kevin. Is all the other times you missed. Okay, all right. Well, you know, uh, you know, the only the world only exists as it pertains to myself. So I just wanted to say that. Get that out of there. So anyway, all right. I I screwed all that up. But thanks, Callie, for being on for the millionth time, and we certainly appreciate uh, all your uh, your insight, and we will look forward to even more of it. Thanks, Thanks, Kevin. I appreciated our first podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That sounded sincere, Kevin. (laughs) It did. It was very sincere. Yeah. I truly meant it. Okay, now that the nice person in the room has left, uh, we will move on with our uh, podcast and talk about uh, a couple of different things in our little potpourri segment. We're going to talk about the uh, the Rangers because Evan is in San Diego and yet another Evan Boondoggle at the GM meetings uh, out there uh, to discuss what the Rangers can do in this uh, free market, uh, free agent market, I should say. Uh, so Evan, explain to our listeners why the Rangers do not need to run out and offer Carlos Correa 10 years and $300 million? Well, first of all, I, I, I think the most significant part is that we don't know what the rules are that the teams are going to be subject to right now. There's a expiring collective bargaining agreement in on December 1st, and all indications are that uh, there won't be anything um, completed by that point in time. And uh, so the rules that are in effect right now re- regarding players who receive the qualifying offer of $18.4 million are that teams that sign those players are going to lose their second highest draft pick. There's also a feeling in this industry that whenever a new collective bargaining agreement is negotiated, that that rule is going to go away. The mystery is which set of rules are going to apply at that point in time. What was negotiated um, prior to December 1st, or what goes into place after December 1st. And I think all clubs are operating with the idea that the rules that are in place at the moment that they sign a player are the rules that are going to take precedence. So all the shortstops, um, Correa, Story, Seeger, Simeon, pitchers like Scherzer, um, Noah Syndergaard, outfielders like Nicholas Castellanos, Chris Taylor, and um, uh, Michael Conforto, all those guys I think are going to kind of be off the board for the time being. So in in this period, you've got some opportunity to go out and sign some guys who did not get a qualifying offer. And I think the Rangers have a a, a chance right in front of them to go out and make a signing that 
does not involve the qualifying offer um, that would provide both uh, significant um, propulsion to their offseason uh, and a significant level of re-enfranchisement for their, for their fans who have gone through five, five consecutive losing seasons. And the answer is Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, you know, I, I'm more on board with that than I have been in the past. You know, the the fear for Clayton is he hasn't pitched over 178 innings since 2015. Uh, and uh, we, we know he's had back problems, and now he's got an elbow problem. Uh, and he's going to be 34 years old uh, next season. So these are all legitimate concerns with investing significant money in. However... They've got a lot of money to spend. I don't mind them spending their money. And I do think that he could have a real impact, uh, not only in, in helping to attract free agents, which is kind of what you've been talking about, but a real impact on a young rotation. I, I can't imagine what that would mean to a guy like Jack Leiter when he comes up to be sitting around uh, and discussing baseball with Clayton Kershaw. Look, I, I, I think that the, the general feeling is there may not be a player more respected uh, for what he's accomplished and who he is than Clayton Kershaw in Major League Baseball. Um, and the Rangers are talking about wanting a championship quality player. That's, that, that's Kershaw. Yes, there are questions about whether or not he's going to pitch, and that's a real big question. Um, let's not overlook that. But I think that there have been pretty – there have been pretty – solid assurances from doctors that this is not going to involve the elbow ligament and that this is going to be something that he'll be able to pitch with uh, next year. Um, so you take all of that into account, and I just feel like this is a team that two years ago was willing to invest $18.5 million in terms of financial commitment on Corey Kluber. They got one inning out of that. Um, they've, got the, they've taken some chances before. This is not an organization that's been scared to take some chances. They've been scared to make some investments in the, in the past few years, but they're in better financial shape to make these kinds of investments than they ever have. And if you go into December 1 with Clayton Kershaw on your, on your roster and committed to being part of this club, then when you do have the lockdown and, and players are sitting there wondering about what their future is going to be, it's going to sit there with guys like Story or Corey Seager or Chris Taylor that, hey, this guy who is the ultimate teammate, who we all know well, uh, he thought it was good enough to invest his the second half of his career with Texas. Um, it, it may make a difference for those guys. I think franchises reach a stage where it, it's for, – for where they are and what they haven't done over a prolonged period of time, uh, this signing, while it – while what it actually gives you you know, on the field may not pay all dividends. There's a lot more to consider on it. And just the goodwill that would bring the franchise, like you say, just the, the, this, this is about building a culture to go forward, right? Uh, who better to build that culture than someone like Clayton Kershaw, who has such a connection to the air, you know, in, in some ways it would be reminiscent of, of what they did with, with Nolan Ryan, bringing him in at the end of his career. I hate to bring everything back to, to Nolan and, and do the parallels, but, but there are some based on the stage of the career and where the, where the franchise is at the moment where uh, I don't think that's a completely unfounded uh, parallel. It's not unfounded at all. And I, I, I just feel like, you know, 
forget about what he does on the field just for a second, because I think if he gives you 100 to 125 innings in 2022, that's fine. Um, and, and you hope then that as you get better in 2023, he'd be able to give you back to 150. Nobody's looking for Clayton Kershaw to throw 200 innings anymore. But at 150 innings, 175 innings, as, as, he's, as he's been in that range pretty much up until this year, he's been really, really good. All right. Uh, the, uh, the athletic director at Texas Tech, Kirby Hocutt, uh, made his hire. Right. I guess we're done with baseball. Kevin is done. Yeah, we're, we're done. We, we need to move. We only have so much time. I, I know that you guys hate to consider that a possibility. Uh, David's specialty is to say, as, as Jeff is saying, let's wrap this up. David says, okay, let me say one, one more thing. thing. <laughs> let me say one more thing very briefly for seven minutes. <laughs> I promise I'm going to get that in your own bit, David. That's, that's so <laughs> great. What a great line. I love that. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Kirby Hocutt, Texas Tech Athletic Director, uh, wanted to hire Jeff Trailer. The uh, head coach at UT San Antonio, who has turned that team, uh, that program around, done a magnificent job in just two years as the head coach. Uh, a guy with deep Texas high school ties, won three state titles at Gilmer. Uh, a really genuine, charismatic character who, who who did just what seemed like the impossible, turned down the tech job basically, and said, "No, I'm going to stay here at UT San Antonio." Uh, so what uh, Kirby Hoka did was go out and and uh, hire him a, uh, what he hopes is a Jeff Trailer starter kit and Joey McGuire, the assistant coach at Baylor, who's uh, only five years in, in college uh, football, all of it at Baylor. He'd been at Cedar Hill before that, won three state titles there, did a great job. By all accounts, Joey McGuire is a very uh, similar guy to Jeff Trailer, very folksy, very charismatic, players love him, uh, coaches love him. You, you see people – saying a, a lot of great things about him. You know, uh, his former boss there at Baylor uh, has, has said that this is the guy that I want to coach my son if he's playing, which is quite a compliment to give somebody. But it, 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 even with all of that being said, uh, Kirby Hoka is sticking his neck out here. He's hired two football coaches at Tech. He's done a great job hiring baseball and basketball coaches. He's hired two football coaches, and he's 0 for 2 although I give him points for what Cliff Kingsbury is doing with the Cardinals now. Uh, but he didn't do anything for the Red Raiders. So he's got to make sure that this hire works out. And he, and he hired a guy who has no head coaching experience in college, has not even been a coordinator uh, in college football. So he is taking some risk here. This is going to be interesting to see how this pans out. Uh, he's already got some commitments from some Cedar Hill players, so it's working out a little bit so far on recruiting, uh, and we'll, we'll see where that develops from there. So it's going to be interesting for, for that uh, to see what happens. Also going to be interesting to see what – I know you guys discussed this last week, what TCU does now without Gary Patterson. There's been a lot of speculation that would Sonny Dykes want that job? You know, I think that's – for a lot of people who have been around this state a long time, it would seem an awfully curious move to go from SMU to TCU. Um I think the 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 upside of that move for Sonny would be uh, it's a Big Twelve school. So so there you got that. Also Fort Worth, uh, that is Fort Worth's team. TCU, SMU is trying very hard to be Dallas's team. They've got that written on their jerseys, on some forms of their jerseys now, which is something that's really unusual. And they have made tremendous efforts, and they've done a great job at recruiting Dallas. 
far better job than I would guess any of the last eight coaches they've had at SMU, uh, making some real inroads. But it's going to be very difficult in my mind to see Sonny leaving to go to TCU uh, even now after all of that, all the work they've done there. Unless I think he, he wants to get a raise. He deserves a raise there at SMU. I don't think that he's going to probably pursue that TC job. We'll see. Well said. Kevin said it so well, I don't think there's anything we can say. <laughs> David, I was hoping you would say, I know we need to wrap this up. <laughs> well, I've got one more I, thing. I know what you're say. hoping. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, I guess that's going to do it for our podcast this week. Uh, I appreciate everybody listening in. We appreciate Callie coming in for not the first time, not the second time. It might have been the fourth or fifth time for all we know. I'm not good with my numbers. <laughs> Who's the second time? You, you, you're not good with that. Just, just, just two times? Is that all that you meant? Okay, all right. Uh, uh, I apologize for that. Uh, that faux pas. That's one. That's one for this year. It's November. I've done really well up to this point. So at any rate, thanks for everybody for listening in. We'll catch you next time. 